0: And so John 17, uh, verse 1 through verse 21, listen now to the reading of God's holy word. Jesus spoke these words, lift, lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your son is also, so that your Son also may glorify you, as you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me. And they have kept your word. Now they have known that all things which you have given me are from you. For I have given to them the words which you have given me. And they have received them and have known surely that I came forth from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me. For they are yours and all mine are yours and yours are mine. And I am glorified in them. Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world. And I come to you, Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me I have kept, and none of them is lost except the son of perdition that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world... I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified by the truth. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who believe in me through their word, that they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. Let's seek the Lord's blessing on this His holy word. O gracious God in heaven, we rejoice and give thanks again that we have this opportunity to come to study your word. And we just pray that your spirit would be at work in our hearts even now, preparing us to receive the truth of your word, and that as it goes forth, it would find within each of our hearts that rich, fertile soil, which will bring about a great and abundant fruit for your glory. And so we ask for your blessing now upon your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We confess that the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments are truly the Word of God, our only infallible rule for faith and life. And in previous messages, we've already considered how God revealed Himself most fully in His Word, given to us by inspiration of the Holy Spirit as the Spirit moved in and through the prophets and the apostles. And this evening, we want to consider this idea of God's Word being our only infallible rule for faith and life. And what exactly that means for us. But before we break down this truth that we confess, we must first consider the very idea of truth. That God is truth, and therefore His Word is also truth. And so in this high priestly prayer of Jesus, here in John 17... Jesus boldly declares here in verse 3 that this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. There can only be one true God, and it is the Lord our God. But there are several ways in which God is true. True can mean that something is genuine, that it's the uh, authentic, it's the real deal. And this is what Jesus has stated, and it's what's been confirmed previously. For example, the prophet Jeremiah said, But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. There can only be one true God. When you think about what God encompasses, there can only be one. There can only be one true God. All other gods are merely idols, fashioned by the imaginations in the hands of men. So God alone is the true God. But true can also refer to the idea of, of veracity, that God is, is truth, that there's no error or shadow of darkness in Him. And as God is, and He speaks the truth, He can't lie or sin. And this is the meaning of Jesus' declaration in John fourteen six when He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through Me. And Jesus is the one true path to God the Father. All other paths are lies and deceits and are filled with error. Jesus is the truth, the one true way. But then finally, true can refer to the idea of faithfulness that God is faithful, that He is reliable, and that He is true to His word and His promises. That is, when He speaks and makes that promise, we know that it will actually come about. Because God is true, well, then He can be trusted. And if He speaks and reveals Himself, this true God speaks to us and reveals Himself through His Word, well, then we had better listen to Him because He only speaks the truth. And the truth is what we need to hear. Well, because God is truth... Then, of course, his word which he's given to us is also true. And we see this declaration made by Jesus again, this high priestly prayer. Again, as we noted in verse 3, Jesus said, God is the only true God. And here Jesus is affirming that he's faithfully, that he's, he's truthfully now fulfilled the purpose thus far that the Heavenly Father appointed for him. He has made known the way of salvation and eternal life to his disciples and he has shown them and revealed to them the glory of the father in verse 6 he says I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world and so Jesus has declared this truth revealed this truth to his disciples but as Jesus continues his prayer for the disciples he emphasizes the truth of God's word that he passed on to them in which they'll now go and bear witness to the world And so, for example, in verse 8, he says, For I have given to them the words which you have given me. So God, the Father, passing on, who is true, passing on to the Son, the true words, and the Son has now faithfully passed them on to the disciples. And then in verse 14, I have given them your word. And then in verse 17, Jesus makes clear that God's word is the truth. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. And it's this word of truth that Jesus will now send out the disciples, uh, soon to be apostles, as he concludes his prayer, by praying for those who will actually then receive the witness and the testimony of the apostles, and who will believe in, uh, in him for salvation because of their witness. They will go forth proclaiming this word of truth. And through the work of the Holy Spirit, they'll commit that truth to writing so that future generations, even we ourselves, might now know and believe the truth of God. And this truth will be a rule and a guide to those who hear and believe it. That is, it will have the very authority of God within it because it is the very word of God And as we apply this truth to our lives, it will lead and guide us to the fullest revelation of God's truth, even Jesus Christ, as it sanctifies and cleanses us, conforming us to the perfect image of Christ. And we looked at that a little bit this morning. And so God's Word has authority in our lives. The Bible, because it is the Word of God, is true. And therefore it is also authoritative now it doesn't derive this authority from from man or from the councils of men or even from the church this is contrary to how most people really think of of the bible they look at the bible and say oh, well the, the the early church decided that this is god's word and so we receive it that way no that's and that's the the teaching of the catholic church that the church confers authority on the word of god we confess that because it's the very word of god that the truth is self-evident within it; it testifies to itself of its truthfulness, coming from God. And so, also for the, for example, you may have seen this. There's a kind of a common sentiment that sometimes Christians uh, express, and and sadly erroneously express, and they'll say, you know in referring to the Bible and maybe a particular teaching of the Bible, they'll say, well, God said it, and I believe it, that settles it. But this basically implies that for the matter to be settled, well, then I must believe it. And if I believe it, well, then the Word of God is allowed to stand as true. Well, when you think about it and unpack this, this actually gives the individual the power to decide whether God's Word is authoritative or not. So it denies the intrinsic authority of God's Word, of, of the Bible, as being the very Word of God, and it leaves it up to the individual to decide. So the more accurate objective phrase would be, God said it, and that settles it having nothing to do with whether I believe it or not, it's God's word, therefore it's true, that settles it. Otherwise, if no one believed the Bible was the word of God, well then the result would be that the authority and truth of God's word would just cease to exist, right? If it was dependent upon us, well then it wouldn't exist. Because we wouldn't believe God's word. So God's word is true because God is true. And God's word testifies within itself that it is true. And because God's word is true, it has authority in our lives. It is a rule by which we ought to believe and express our faith and how we are to live our lives. But when we say that the word of God is our only infallible rule for faith and life, there are two other things that we must also acknowledge. That is, as truth, God's word is inerrant and infallible. So what do these words mean? Well, inerrancy is closely tied to the fact that God's word is truth. Inerrancy simply means that there are no errors in the Bible. It's true And it's perfect. Again, this is related to the very character of the one who gave it, God himself. God is perfect and true. Therefore, his word is perfect and true, because it's his revelation of himself. And then we know that God doesn't lie, and in him there is no darkness. And so God is truth, and when he gave his word to mankind, he gave man truth, and there again is no darkness in it at all. And so, for example, in Psalm 18 Verse 30, as for God, His way is perfect. The word of the Lord is proven. He is a shield to all who trusted Him. So because God is perfect, His word is, is proven. That is, it needs no defense for it to stand as perfect. In Psalm 19, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. The perfection of God's Word is what gives it its power. Only the perfect Word of God can bring a sinful man to to salvation and this is what Jesus acknowledged in his prayer again John 17 verse 17 sanctify them by your truth your word is truth again God doesn't lie and when he speaks there are no lies and since God breathed the words of the Bible well they are indeed perfect and without error but the Bible does contain lies That is, though the Bible, as God's word, is perfect, true, and without error, it does contain imperfection. It does contain lies, and it does contain errors. But it does so only in that it accurately reports these imperfections, lies, and errors. And so, for example, back in Genesis 3, we read this, the the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. That was the first great lie. And it was a destructive lie, leading to uh, the fall of of uh, of Adam and Eve into sin, and with them, all their posterity, into a state of sin and misery. But here's this lie, right there in the Bible. But it's here by God's appointment. Though God didn't speak the lie, He wanted this lie of Satan accurately recorded. So. Mankind, so even we ourselves, can now look back and see how we became fallen, sinful creatures. And so the same is true when God appointed that it would be recorded of the, the deeds of the wicked or the idolatry of Israel and the betrayal of Judas. All these things are lies and deceitfulness and their imperfections, and yet they stand and they're included in the Bible as warnings to us. But they're recorded there accurately. So an accurate lie, I guess you'd say. Well, inerrancy extends to the whole of Scripture. Psalm 119, verse 160, The entirety of your word is truth. And so again, this includes everything in the Scriptures. The creation account in, uh, in Genesis, when we th- read through uh, how the world was created, uh, in the space of six days and of course today we know people argue about well whether that's just is that an actual historical account is it, uh, is it uh, poet poetic um, or is it just symbolic or whatever it might be people try to explain that truth away but God spoke the truth there think about all the genealogies that we have God is speaking to us truth All aspects of faith and history that we find in the Bible is a true and accurate account. Now one could easily raise the question as to why then there are so many variations in the text of the original manuscripts. First, though, we must understand that the textual variants uh, are considerably few when compared to the number of texts that exist. That is, in, in all the thousands of the Greek and, and Hebrew manuscripts, there really is only a very small fraction of differences, so that uh, most agree upwards of 99 percent. And you would be hard-pressed to find any other ancient literature that has as many existing copies or has such a higher rate or has as high a rate of agreement. Uh, within those manuscripts or among those manuscripts and of course the differences that do exist can mostly be attributed to, to scribal or copious errors rather than errors in the original manuscripts the work of a scribe of course was a very tedious and and uh, yet again the degree of variance compared to the degree of agreement is very slight and so they were very careful and they're human. They may have made uh, slight uh, strokes and, and differences, uh, but those uh, differences are very slight. And also, though there are variant readings, especially in in, uh, in certain passages, we know that none of those variant readings really affects the central biblical truths or doctrines that are necessary for salvation. So even when there are uh, differences, uh between different manuscripts, it doesn't really affect the overall theme and the message of what the Bible is, is teaching. And thirdly, it should be remembered that the Bible exhibits accuracy and not necessarily exactness. And so, for example, <clears throat> uh, when it's noted in Ecclesiastes 1, uh, verse 5, that the sun also rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it arose. Well, if you think about that imagery, this doesn't mean that the sun is revolving around the earth. Now, it's true from an earthly perspective that the sun rises and sets. Of course, we even speak of this today, even though we know that it is the earth that revolves around the sun. Well, the Bible was not inaccurate on this point, though it's true. In the 17th century, the church held that the earth was stationary. But they didn't get this from an accurate reading of the Bible. In fact, they relied more on ancient Greek uh, Aristotle than on they, they did on the scriptures. And so when Copernicus comes along, Copernicus was a, was a sincere uh, Christian and believer in Christ. And he confirmed that it was the earth that moved around the sun. Well, of course, it caused a great ruckus. But, of course, the church's position at the time was a tradition of man and not a biblical principle. And we often hear that argument brought up at various times related to faith and science. Oh, well, the, you know, Christians used to believe that the um, the uh, the sun revolved around the earth. Well, the man who showed us that that wasn't true was a Christian. And the church had, um, and again, showing us one of the errors of Uh, the Roman church at the time. So what the Bible says about science is true given the understanding of the time in which it was written. And that's how we should read and understand the Bible. That sometimes it's not necessarily meant to be a scientific textbook, but what it reveals to us about the uh, created world, about science and what we know it is proven true over and over and over again. And so the Bible is inerrant. That is, it's without error. Well, next we have infallibility. And infallibility basically means that the Word of God is reliable and trustworthy because it is without error. The Bible contains truth. We can trust the Bible as being the very Word of God. And so again, we see that infallibility is closely related to inerrancy. Obviously, if God's word is perfect and without error, then it can be relied upon, it can be trusted, and it can be believed. Again, Psalm 119, The entirety of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous judgments endures forever. So, only truth endures forever. And God's word is truth. And since it endures forever, it is therefore trustworthy. And so we can believe in the Bible and, and what the Bible says because it is God's word and therefore is reliable and even God himself is reliable because ultimately the word comes from God. And it the word displays and reveals the magnificence of God and his attributes. The, uh, the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy is a fairly uh, recent statement. I think it maybe back in the 1980s or 1990s. And uh, this confirmed, was confirmed by many evangelicals uh, as a way to combat liberalism, and it defines infallibility this way. <clears throat> we affirm that Scripture, having been given by divine inspiration, is infallible, so that for, far from misleading us, it is true and reliable in all matters it addresses. We deny that it is possible for the Bible to be at the same time infallible and errant in its assertions. Infallibility and inerrancy may be distinguished, but not separated. So there's that close relationship between inerrancy and infallibility. Without inerrancy, you don't have infallibility. Without infallibility, you don't have inerrancy. If the Word of God wasn't infallible, then the Bible would have no power within it. It would just be really the empty words of men and we could have no certainty about whether they were true or not. But since, God, since the word of God is truth and reliable and infallible, well then the word of God is able to make us wise and to salvation. Now, Peter says in 1 Peter 1, Because all flesh is as grass and all the glory of man is the flower of the grass, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Now this is the word by which the gospel was preached to you. So the word of God endures forever. Again, because God himself endures forever. So why must the word of God be authoritative, inerrant, and infallible in order to be the word of God? Well, as we stated, the word of God is closely related to the character of God. And since the Bible is God-breathed, So if we deny the inerrancy and infallibility of the Bible, then the very character of God would be called into question. If we would strip authority from the Bible, well then basically we're saying that God has no authority in our lives. Indeed, if we can't trust the Bible because it has errors, because it's untruthful or it's merely the opinions of men, then how can we trust God who has revealed Himself in the Bible? If the Bible has errors, and the Bible claims to be God's word, then it must mean that God has lied to us, or has been misleading us. If the Bible has errors, then how can we trust it? How can we know error from truth? What standard do we have to determine what is right and what is wrong? What rule of authority do we measure our lives by? But can you see the significance of these doctrines? If we take away the authority, the inerrancy, and the infallibility of the scriptures, then we're left with nothing worthy to stand on. Nothing to stake a claim of faith in. Nothing to give us life. Now, kind of the best way to, to illustrate this is to consider a little bit of church history. and The doctrines of inerrancy and, and, and infallibility and in the authority of God's word uh, came under fire well kind of pretty much from the beginning but especially came under fire as far back as the 18th century with the rise of what we call rationalism rationalism rejected the supernatural and rejected divine revelation and then by the 19th century rationalism to so 1700s now to the 1800s Rationalism began to influence the church, especially through the institutions of the church and the seminaries. And amazingly, what was once the birthplace of the Reformation, Luther's Germany, actually became the center of rationalism uh, in in those seminaries. And much of this was through what was called higher criticism, that is, uh, studying the text of the Bible to determine their origin. But of course, at the root of this was a denial of the infallibility and inerrancy of this, the Bible as science and the scientific method were now being applied to the, Bi- to the Bible and being used as the rule and standard. And so you see already the, uh, uh, the, the belief and in the inerrancy and the infallibility of the Bible was put aside. And it's put aside when we're going to study the scriptures and, and figure out well, where did they come from. And so, obviously, if you deny the inerrancy and the infallibility of God's Word, well, you're not going to come up with a very good reason when you're studying the Bible to find out what it truly says. Well, then, late in, uh, in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, uh, German liberalism spread, of course, to the United States. And, of course, it was in this realm of academia and the seminaries where it gained a foothold. So no wonder that many are skeptical of the need for higher education among clergy today. And some people refer to seminaries as cemeteries. And in many cases, that is exactly true. Well, in American Presbyterianism, the issue was very significant. And uh, one of the bastions of orthodoxy at the time, uh, Princeton Seminary, had really then, uh, uh, over time, had fallen prey to these liberal influences and of course by the 1920s it uh it got so bad and there was all this battle for the bible during that time and the authority of the bible and again the the influence of these the german liberals was coming in and uh people like bb warfield and and um and the hodges uh fighting against these liberal influences well, of course, later in the 1920s is when you have a Gresham Machen then eventually leaving uh, the mainline Presbyterian Church uh, and beginning the uh, Westminster Seminary. He, was, he used to be at Princeton, then he, he started Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia and, of course, later established the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. And so, of course, though, with most pastors coming out of seminary at that time not really believing... In the inerrancy and infallibility of the Scriptures, well, it just was only a matter of time before it sort of began to trickle down to the people in the pews. And so the slippery slope began. And so it leads now to where people can be selective about what they determine to be truth and error in the Bible. And they'll say, well, some teachings of Scripture were were considered to be not really from God. But these were just uh, men that wrote these things. And so we just have the opinions of Paul rather than the Word of God. And so we can then discount Paul every time wherever he says something that we disagree with him. Paul says that he forbids a woman to teach or have authority over man. And then we must... But now we must be allowed to have women elders and pastors because that was just Paul's opinion. And so suddenly if Paul's teaching here is, becomes suspect, well then there must be other areas where, uh, uh, where Paul or even other areas of the Bible that are just opinions of men and not really applicable to us today. And so sin, which only makes people feel bad and guilty, well, that must not really be what God wants His people to hear about. God wants His people to be happy and so the passages that talk about sin are not really needed. They're in error, or they're not reliable. And of course now we're seeing the fruits of this in the wide acceptance of homosexual behavior, not only for church membership, but even now for church office in some branches of the church. But you see, all this began way back with a rejection of the authority of God's Word, with a rejection of the inerrancy and the infallibility of God's Word. And then it just sort of snowballs from there because it opens the door for all these other errors to come in. But, we can certainly praise God and be thankful that His Word is truth. That it is reliable, that it does, uh, that it contains no errors and is therefore the power of God unto salvation. And as the apostles were sent to proclaim this truth and write it down for the sake of future generations, so too are we to continue proclaiming the truth of God's Word. And again, at a time when truth is viewed as relative and ever-changing, proclaiming the truth of God's Word becomes all the more necessary and important. Because the Bible provides an anchor and a refuge in this chaotic world in which we live pointing people to the one true living God, the only one who was able to save them from the chaos. Indeed, God's Word, the Bible, is our only infallible rule for faith and life. Let's pray. O gracious God in heaven, we rejoice and give thanks to you for the truth that You have revealed to us, not only this evening, but the truth of Your Holy Word. That it is our only infallible rule for faith in life. There are other rules and standards, but only Your Word is infallible, without error, that it's fully reliable. That it tells us all that we need to know for faith and what we're to believe concerning You and, and what duty You require of us. And that we are to call to conform our lives to this truth. And that in doing so there is great blessing and reward. Because as the more we become conformed to the truth of your word. The more we are drawn closer and closer to that perfect image of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And so we praise you and thank you for this truth. And we ask Lord that you would give us great boldness to proclaim this truth. Especially in our world today. Where there is no truth, or people claim there is no truth, and people are just imagining their own truth. And it's leading to not only just not only foolishness, but it's leading to sin and and great destruction. And sadly we see even this in the church today, where your truth is shunned. And so we pray, Lord, that you would continue to be gracious toward us, that we would continue to faithfully proclaim your truth, to be a true beacon and light to this community, declaring the way of salvation through your Son, the only way, the true way, through Jesus Christ. And so we ask for your blessing upon us in these things, and that you would continue to reveal your truth to us. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ we pray, amen.